0: All right, so if you, if you have your notes, we're tonight, so by way of review, we've covered quite a, I'm not going to go through all the slide. I'll turn this on, it would help, no, yeah, there we go. So we, we've covered our introduction, hmm. I think I'm going to need a couple AAA batteries, y'all. It's on, but it's not. It's not on. I, the the screen's not on. The usually this has a little number on it. I think. I'm zapping batteries today. I uh, I had to just replace the batteries in my mouse today too. So. All right. So well, they'll get that. That won't hinder us. So I'll just continue to review. If you're joining us online, um, I think our notes, I don't know if our notes are on here or not um, on on the website. I'll check on that. But, uh, yeah, it's not even giving me a screen. So I'm sure this is the problem. There we go. Well, I say I'm sure that's the problem. I don't see a screen now either on here. It may just be the clicker died on us. It is about 15 years old. So it's older than you almost. No, I don't have a. Uh, I don't have. I don't have the little. Uh, it may be the clicker because I don't have a, a laser pointer on it either. So, yeah, I don't think it's up there. I think it. It may be here. So, here we can do this. <laughs> <coughs> no, it should have the little laser pointer, and it's not working either. So, uh, I don't know what the problem is. Is on off? All right. I want to apologize to anyone watching us online because you can't hear half of what we talked about. Now we're having technical difficulties and the slides aren't advancing. So um, so forgive us and forgive me for all of that. Uh, so just uh, by way of review, if you have notes, we've covered quite a bit already. Uh, we talked about the biblical outline of church history. We'll touch on that again in a minute. The timing of Christianity, the timing of the biblical perspective, the timing of a historical perspective about all the aspects of the, the uh, various... Uh, things in the Roman Empire that facilitated the gospel to go forth from the ease of travel in the Roman Empire, um, the spiritual vacuum in the, the Roman Empire, the safety that was provided there, the common language, uh, how the Apostle Paul was a key man in a key time, uh, how the foundation of the Apostles and Prophets uh, is recorded and all you know, many of them uh, were martyred uh, and so uh, not the Prophets but the Apostles. Uh, And we talked about that, some of the founding of the church, which led us to, uh, you know, really just the strategic battle between God and the devil in church history. So when God's moving, uh, the devil wants to counterfeit everything that Jesus Christ is doing. And so we talked about how... Yes, ma'am. Okay, just uh, go down... Yeah, go ahead and get to... um, Actually, go ahead and advance it to... um, Church history and the book of Revelation, because that's where we're gonna. That's where we're gonna pick up. The rest is review, which um, I can just do that from my notes. So it. Uh, I don't remember which slide number it is. Church history and the book of Revelation will be the title, and then we'll go from there. A simple outline of the book of Revelations where we're gonna start. Okay, so um, we saw that, uh, and this is important, and we've covered this now. This is the third time I've mentioned that. That uh, that. That Satan is the greatest counterfeiter of Jesus Christ and we talked about that uh, he counterfeits his light, he counterfeits his king him, he counterfeits being the king, uh, he counterfeits uh, being God he counterfeits being a prince, uh, he's a prince in power of the air but he is not the, the you know the prince of peace and so he's constantly countering the word of God through the Bible both in the Old Testament and the New Testament we talked about that and then we talked about divining church history which we have done before uh, that the, it's a, really, if you want to boil church history down, it's the movement of God throughout history to accomplish his threefold plan for what? The universe, this earth, and our lives, right? That's the three things that God's always wanting to accomplish, and uh, he has a plan for this universe, he has a plan for this earth, he has a plan for your life. And once you get that down, it really makes life a lot easier to understand, and so, and your Bible. And then we talked about the second definition, which is the movement of Satan throughout history to counter and counterfeit God's threefold plan. So when you get that down, it really helps you go through and, and kind of noodle through uh, mentally what is going on in church history. And we'll see that as we go through the rest of our study. And then we looked at the chur- church history in the book of Acts, which is really uh, the church history that we have. H- Acts is a transitional book, but it's also, if you're in my Acts study, I taught you also it's a historical book, right? It's our, it's our first document of what was going on with church history as God was really estab- quickening his church in Acts chapter 2 and then going forward from there. And so we saw that the only thing that's consistent about the book of Acts is its inconsistency, and it's inconsistent because the second point we saw is a transitional book, and we understand that uh, God is transitioning from the Old Testament law, of Moses, to the New Testament dispensation of grace, from the Old Testament structure to the New Testament structure, from the Jew to the Gentile, from the nation of Israel to the church, from the kingdom of heaven to the kingdom of God, from Peter to Paul, and uh, and, uh, from... God's headquarters in Jerusalem to... Where's his headquarters at uh, by the end of the book of of Acts? Where's the action coming from? Nope. That's where Satan's oriented. Antioch. That's right. Antioch. So uh, Jerusalem was the key church, right? And that's where God's in the book... It was the headquarters in the beginning of Acts. And by the end of Acts, it's it's Antioch. Antioch did all the uh, mission movements uh, to get the church going from, uh, you know, in the Gentile world in Asia. And eventually Paul found his way to Europe. So the third thing we saw, uh, if you had your outline, was the movement of God in the book of Acts. Starts, which is, you got, This is nothing new to m- many of you. God's uh, movement started in Jerusalem, right? Then he moved to Judea, Samaria, and then the uttermost parts of the earth. And we ended last week talking about how God uh, moves in, in the book of Acts and Satan counter moves, And you see that just going back and forth. And I gave you a long list of verses um, as well, and those are in a PowerPoint. But we're not going to look at those right now. All right, so that gets me to where we're going to pick up tonight on your outline, uh, which is um, which is the, the page that says Church History and the Book of Revelation. Church History and the Book of Revelation. So it's a simple out. This is a simple outline of the Book of Revelation. So we've already looked at really the, the seven churches um, a few weeks ago, and we're going to cover those once again, real briefly, but. Just, you can't really get an understanding of church history without this template from Revelation. And so if you have your Bibles, turn to Revelation chapter 1. Revelation chapter 1. And we're going to pick it up in, uh, in verse 10. <clears throat> and uh, it's, it begins with John being moved forward through time in Revelation one ten. So um, he says here in Revelation one let let's go back to verse 9. He says, I, John, who also am your brother and companion in tribulation and in the kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ, was in the isle that is called Patmos for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. And then he says this in verse 10. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and heard behind me a great voice as of a trumpet. And so in the spirit on the Lord's day, what he's not not talking about Sunday, first of all. I could go on talking about that. But the Lord's day... Is never called Sunday um, in the Bible. Um, the Lord's Day is really referring to the Second Coming, but He's in the Spirit. He's not dreaming. It's not a vision. Um, he is—he's literally re- removed from his flesh. He, he's actually been fast-forwarded in time. Uh, when we go through the Book of Revelation, I take a little more time and teach on that. But, but He literally—he—he um, he goes forward in time, um, and so. When you hear the Lord's Day, um, a lot of people think, oh, that's Sunday's the Lord's Day. Well, we, we, we say that. Really, it's the first day of the week is what it is. And it is the day in which we worship. It's the pattern that Jesus set on the resurrection. But the reality is the Lord's Day is referring to the second coming of Christ specifically. And I think I have that in your notes. The tribulation <clears throat> is generally referred to and co- talks about the, the second coming of Christ. So the second coming of Christ encapsulates... Uh, uh, the all of Daniel's seventieth week, though he has he doesn't physically return until the end of the tribulation period when he puts his foot on the Mount of Olives. Uh, the church is caught up, and then uh, he is doing his work to f- fulfill Daniel's seventieth week. All of that is is it's not called the second coming; it's just called the day the, the day of the Lord uh, begins. In essence, at that point, although the thousand year reign starts at the coming of Christ physically to this earth, and so the Lord's day the day of the Lord, uh, those, those terms uh, all are pointing to uh, the second coming of Christ. And so um, it's, uh, it's sort of like the, the coming of Christ, that it, just to sort of kind of get your head around that, because it sounds like it's a little bit uh, wobbly. We call the first coming of Christ, the first coming of Christ, is it when he was born or when he started his public ministry, or is it when he died on the cross? It's all of it, right? Jesus' first coming was he was incarnate, and so he became flesh. He also started his public ministry at 30 years old. And then he also died on the cross for our sins. It's not inappropriate to say all of that, uh, and some of that is his first coming. Jesus at his first coming accomplished a lot of things. Well, same thing with the second coming. Uh, When he comes back to this earth, he's going to establish his kingdom for a 1,000 years. He's literally going to return to this earth. But in the tribulation period, he's also... Uh, once the catching away of the church begins or goes up, he finishes off seven year period prophesied in Daniel chapter nine, uh, preceding that day of the Lord, and and really all of that is part of what's coming, in the, in the second coming of Christ. So he prepares uh, the nation of Israel to receive him at his coming, and so uh, at any rate, um, I'm kind of getting off in the weeds a little bit. Point B, uh, which I think, uh, see, I'm not, I'm seeing what you're seeing. Okay, so God tells John to write uh, from his location in history. And we saw there in verse 10, it's on the Isle of Patmos at this particular moment. Now look at verse 19 here. It says, Write these things which thou hast seen, and the things which are, and the things which shall be hereafter. Now if you were, I I know some of you were in our Revelation study, so you'll remember that this is dealing with the past and and the present, and then the things thereafter at the second coming. And so... The things that thou hast seen are the things in the past. Uh, You have that outlined for us in Revelation chapter two and verses chapters two and three. Uh, The things which are, which is Revelation chapter four through Revelation chapter nineteen, and then the things that'll be after come in Revelation nineteen twelve after the second coming of Christ until until the uh, the the, uh, the end of the book of Revelation, right? Till eternity future so you get you really get um the past the present and then the future so you can see that and uh, also listed there in verse 19 right the the things which thou hast seen past the things which are present and the things which shall be hereafter and that really gives you an outline for the book of revelation and so that's important because john is actually witnessing and viewing these things um and and uh he he's 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 been transported to the future, so uh, that's amazing. All right. So point two, we find church history uh, past sum, summed up in seven letters written to the seven churches, and so and by the way, the book of Revelation is is keyed on the number seven. Seven, as you know, completes God's creation. The seventh day God rested. Uh, the book of Revelation, the last book in the in the New Testament, is the completion of the New Testament. It's seven. And it fulfills what God is going to do. He's going to end up coming to this earth and bringing peace, rest to the earth for a thousand years. Revelation chapter uh, 22 speaks to that. And then go into eternity future. I should say Revelation 20, 21. And then Re- Revelation 22, we go into eternity future. So, um, And so we find that church history is summed up in these, the past is in, in these seven churches. Somebody was asking me that the other day. How do you know those seven churches represent? Uh, church history. Well, that's one of the reasons, you know, because the outline for the book of Revelation is in Revelation one, nineteen. Uh, John is seeing what has been, what is, and what will be. Um, but also, as you look, and we're going to do this each with each church. As you look at what was going on in history, it lines up perfectly historically with what was going, what has happened, in retrospect. So it's sort of like, it's sort of like this. Uh, you know, in, in eighteen hundred. You know how do you know God's going to fulfill his promise to Israel? Well, you just kind of kind of got to know that God's going to fulfill his promise to Israel by faith um, and so that was a big question mark the theologically um, you know is well, are we the Israel of God and all of that? That's all covenant theology, and it's wrong um, but the but the point is is that I got a little grace for folks that didn't really know for sure if Israel was going to be a nation because well they hadn't been a nation for since seventy a d right so maybe maybe we just thought that that was going to happen literally okay so i they didn't know what was coming but in 1948 right when israel becomes a nation we it's pretty easy to see right now that god is literally going to fulfill his word exactly as he said right and so we know that god is fulfilling his word it seemed it may have seemed impossible right in 1600 or 1500 or 1200 ad uh, and uh, and so people may have claimed the promises of God and written volumes of books about it, and they're wrong. Uh, but now we know. It's easy to look back and say, "Well, yeah, it happened just like God said it's going to happen, and it's going to it's going to be fulfilled just like He said." Well, yeah, it's gosh. I got saved in 1987, so uh, I mean, it should be easy for me to see that. I mean, I'm born. I was born again after Israel became a nation. So for many people today, uh, young people like y'all. Israel's been a nation my whole life. It just is. But uh, if you were alive in 1900, Israel wasn't a nation. And so if you were alive in 1940, Israel wasn't a nation yet, although they had the land promised to them in 1918. And so, and so uh, we can see that God fulfills his word exactly as it said. Now, those events are leading us right into Daniel's 70th week, which in Daniel chapter 9 deals with a, a week, seven, a seven-year period uh, that God is going to restore Israel, and the Antichrist is going to come. It's, I'm not going to get back there today and get into all of that, but I just mention that because God is fulfilling His word perfectly. So, just like I can say that, and I can tell you very, very uh, specifically that when God is in Revelation or uh, Romans chapter nine through eleven, God's dealing with His elect nation, Israel, and He promises that they're going to be restored someday. It's very easy for me now in 2021 to look back and say, "Yep, that's 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 on the clock. It's coming any day now. You know, we're going to get caught up and and that party's going to start." So, it's easy to see in retrospect uh, that same thing with the with the 7 or the 2000 years of church history. It's much it's really kind of easy at this point when you look back uh, to see that this is very accurate. This outline fits perfectly with the the last 2000 years of church history and the dates in which we have listed here. So, uh, let me give you just, uh, the, just the three applications of Scripture, which you guys, I think, are, are familiar with as well. I mean, Mark just taught some of those a few uh, months ago. So the first is historically, right? That's how we we study the Bible. There's three applications. So historically, there are seven uh, literal churches that existed in, in Asia Minor, right? So uh, if you're wondering where that's at, you can look in your Bible maps, but if this is the... Uh, you know, the Mediterranean Sea, you have this peninsula here, Israel's down here, and this is a horrible map, Uh, but, but, uh, and the Black Sea's up here somewhere, and then, you know, you got Italy over here with the boot, you know, whatever, and, uh, and all of that, so the Mediterranean is, that's horrible, all right, so this is the Black Sea, and it doesn't really do that, it goes north like that, but anyhow, you get the picture, no, you don't, you can't see anything off of this. But you got Greece, and then you got Greece is sitting out here, right? This is Greece uh, and Achaia and all that. And then you got Italy over here, and then you go off into Europe, Spain, France, and uh, the up, down here is Africa. All right, so the seven churches, they're all scattered about uh, in Asia Minor. Uh, Asia. When you see Asia Minor in your Bible, by the way, it's not talking about like um, India or, or China. It's Asia in the... When you see it, is it's still – actually, I just saw an article the other day on this, interestingly enough. And the question was, is Turkey, modern-day Turkey, is it part of Asia? There's debate on that to this day um, <clears throat> because it historically was called Asia. And, it, and the reason why it was Oriental, it was still it – a, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a easily assimilated with the Middle East and the Oriental culture of the, of the East, meaning India and China and uh, the, that, those, those people groups. Uh, historically, not that you care about all that, but the seven churches are all located in Asia Minor. Ephesus is the key church, right? So you have Ephesus is the first church. We're going to look at her tonight um, if we get time, and I need to make time to get there because we have got to move on. But Ephesus, Ephesians, oh, sorry, Ephesus, this church is where the church, all these other churches were planted. Colossae um, and uh, Smyrna. Man, look out. Uh, and uh, Laodicea, all those churches are planted out of Ephesus. So Ephesus is the first church that we're going to look at, but it's also a key church uh, to church history. And so we'll talk about that here in a little bit when we get to it. So, um, so we have, um, these are all located in modern-day Turkey, and the letters address uh, real needs and issues taking place in each and every church. So those churches had real needs, uh, and, and, and John, the apostle, uh was dealing with well, well really god was dealing with it's really him just recording what the spirit says to the churches so um historically that's what you have so you do have john giving a literal historical address to seven literal churches in asia have you ever how many of you have seen drive-through history by the way a handful of you drive-through history if you haven't google it up i'm sure it's on youtube somewhere um or, or try to find it legitimately on, like, History Channel or whoever put that thing out. But there's this dude that gets in his car, and he drives through history. And one of the things that he does in the Bible history, he's, a, he's really and he's, he's really got lots of great information historically, and he's very accurate. But one of his, his series of shows, um, each week he would hit one of the seven churches. And he'd drive through modern-day Turkey and get out of the car and stand on the locations. Uh, sometimes he's in a field, and there's nothing, you know, left. And other times, you know, there's still some some decay, or they put up some ropes and said, "Hey, here's a tourist site," and you know, put up something. But he would go from spot to spot, and then he'd give you all this history, and he makes it really entertaining. And it's also cool to see, you know, as he's going through and visiting all these real sites. Um, it's also kind of see neat to see all that has developed or not developed around these locations. But these the seven churches are are identifiable to this day. So. This is not the Book of Mormon, right? So this isn't like the Angel Moroni delivered us some crazy revelation that you can never actually literally find in archaeology because it doesn't exist, right? Uh these are literal <laughs> these are literally documented places, seven churches uh that you can find. Some of them actually, of course it could be tourism. I can't remember which one it was. I was when I was studying something, I found one of the churches. They they actually say you know, right here is where Paul met. And of course, they're trying to make some money off of that too. But uh, they believe that they have the literal location. So these were literal churches uh, that that were started. Uh, John also had a ministry in this area, which, by the way, is a, I'm going I'm getting I'm not on my notes, but I got to tell you this. So a lot of people think uh, somebody was asking me this recently. Uh, maybe you're watching online. So um, they they sent me a question about that subject about how how Paul's so dominant. One of the reasons. That you in the New Testament, one of the things that that is also a validation, so to speak. Not that we need a validation other than the Spirit of God and the Word of God, but one of the things that you see in addition to the Apostle Peter shaking hands with with uh, Paul, you know, saying, "Hey, the things that Paul wrote, make sure you get those things. They're hard to be understood, but they're important." You know, and also the fact that that Paul or Peter and them give him the right hand of fellowship and say, "Go and." Do what God's called you to do, all that stuff that we know. In addition to that, you see that after, after Paul is dead and the churches of Asia we know turned on him, there were some bad boys in Asia, in Asia Minor, uh, that were, were sowing a lot of bad seed about Paul. Paul dies. Uh, he gets his head chopped off in Rome, is what we learned last week, right? Well, so who comes back around to help uh, with the churches there? The Apostle John. So John comes back around. And helps. He doesn't. He doesn't unteach anything that Paul says. As a matter of fact, as as you read First John, uh, there's a lot of a lot of things that bleed over. The more you read for, like I've been going through First John quite a bit, and uh, I read an author who said, "Oh yeah, I think he read the Pauline epistles." I'm like, "What?" But the more I read First John, actually, the more I, I realize I think I think he did read the Pauline epistles. I think John had access to those already by whatever date he wrote First John. And uh, and because you can see a lot of things that, that uh, John is talking about, it's like wow, that that that's a Pauline thought, and so uh, of course it all comes from Christ. But it is interesting how John comes back around, um, and he is addressing these these churches, many of which who had some struggles um, before Paul's death, and so that's that's another verification again of of the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ through these apostles, whether uh, Jew or Gentile. So. Uh, if that's a question for you, I hope that gives you some help. So doctrinally, the, the first way we apply it is doctrinally. What happened historically now? Or I mean, historically. And then the second way is doctrinally. So they represent the seven periods. If you're looking for a, a fill in the blank there, they they represent the seven periods of church history. And so um, that's what you're going to find there. Uh, now, I gave, I gave you on this next slide. Um, go ahead and pop up the next one. I think I gave all seven churches, didn't I? Uh no. Go back one more. Maybe not. There we go. There's your seven churches. And you've all if you want another outline, if you got our other notes, I put them on uh the other. We've already touched on them a few weeks ago in our introduction. I gave you their names, their dates in my outline of church history. So I'm kind of reviewing that again. Um, and so Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamus, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. I'm not going to tarry on that because we've already covered that before. And then um, um, we can just, does anybody need that to park for a second? Okay, I'll leave that there for just a moment. And while we're looking at that, um, so you, these are the seven churches. They're not all the churches of Asia Minor, uh, but they're the, they are the seven churches that God has selected. Uh, you know, you don't see Iconium. Right? There's other churches that, that we know of. These are the ones that God uh, was addressing. Ephesus, which was the church in which these churches were started. Smyrna, Pergamos, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. Uh, you often hear us talk about Laodicea. Why is it that, the, that you know we're considered the church of Laodicea? Why do you think that is? In addition to, you can read the text in Revelation 3 and find out. I mean, it tells you very clearly. But yeah, Pam. Yeah, it's the last church listed. And we believe the coming of the Lord is any day now. So it would it only it makes logical sense that we would be the last church. But there are uh and I'll get to that when we talk about the inspirational so uh, when you read Revelation three, uh you can also see how it really does rights of the people is very much what's going on in our culture. And and you'll often hear me here around here refer to the you know, the Laodicean church age. I'm talking about the age in which we live. He says the the, the church of Laodicea the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write, These things saith the Amen, the faithful, the true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. I know thy works, that thou art neither cold nor hot. So they're just tepid. I would that thou wert cold or hot. So then, because thou art lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will spew thee out of my mouth. Because thou sayest, I am rich and increased with goods." doesn't mean you are. You say that you're rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing, and knowest not that thou art wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. And we rightly, you know, construe that to mean we are focused on the wrong things, right? You say you're rich and increased with goods, but you don't really know what's valuable. And so the church of Laodicea has lost its value, the value of Christ, frankly, the value of the Word of God. Uh, and uh, and so things are all upside down and backwards, and then he goes on to say uh, that you're miserable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel thee: This is what I need you to do. Buy of me gold, tried in the fire, that thou mayest be rich, and white raiment that thou mayest be clothed, that the shame of thy nakedness do not appear. And anoint thine eyes with eye salve that thou mayest see. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Be zealous, therefore, and repent. And so he's talking to Christians, not the lost people. And he's saying, You know what, I love a lot of people, but I I, I you know what? Um, as many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. They're in the doghouse. And uh so the the admonition is be zealous therefore and repent. And then he says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice and open the door, uh <clears throat> I will come in to him and will sup with him, and he with me. Notice how individual it is. I know that's interesting. It's like, it's like Peter on the seashore, right? He, had, he called everybody to dine, but actually Peter was the one that sat down with him. We really, I believe we need some FaceTime, but not on the Internet. We need FaceTime with Jesus in this church age. If we want to get serious about overcoming the spirit of this age, you've got to sup with Jesus, right? You've just got to get in the Word of God, and you've got to sup with Jesus. And going on to say, he says, To him that overcometh will I grant to sit with me in my throne. So you can overcome the spirit of this age. Even as I also overcame and am sat down with my father in his throne, he that hath an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. So he's addressing the church and the churches, but it's interesting that he is specifically dealing with individuals in this particular church. His counsel is to individuals because everyone in this culture is increasingly becoming an individual, but yet they're not free. That's an interesting thing. So individual, soul, liberty comes out of the philadelphian church age where everyone worked together there was brotherly love and liberty came from that freedom came from that um uh and and and, and that's amazing but now it's gone to the other extreme to where everybody is so uh they, they want their own rights right it's all about my rights and it's easy to extrapolate that out into and you can see how right now there's a marxist agenda dividing everybody up on those things that's as, that's as, you know, that's as new as, you know, the Romanov family. It doesn't take, whether it's rich or poor, black or white, whatever, you know, um, Mexican, American, whatever. Whatever, you can divide people up over lots of things, and it's just a mechanism to, to divide people. But the root of that is people feel like they're shorted, and they want what they want. And it's not about giving. It's about taking, right? And so that, that's just being ginned up to divide people. Well, to overcome the spirit of this age, we've got to go back and go, wait a minute. What is all this about? It's about Jesus, right? He gave his life for everybody. I mean, it all, it all, it's about, like I said, Sunday, it's about a person. All right, so you should have your seven churches filled in by now. So uh, let's keep moving through the outline. The third way that we apply the, the book of Revelation is, is, is inspirationally, And these seven churches represent churches today. And so there are churches today that are just like uh, these churches in history. And so uh, from a practical perspective as a pastor, right, I want to see Heartland have the best attributes of all seven churches, right? And kick to the curb all the bad attributes. And that's a, I can tell you this, it's a continuous improvement process (laughs) because no church is perfect. This church isn't perfect. We have all kinds of problems because we're all kinds of people. But praise God by his grace, uh, he helps us through each step. So you can use Ephesians, or I mean uh, uh, Revelation 2 and 3 in the seven churches, and you can take the strong attributes by God's grace and say, God, help Heartland. Uh, you know, be faithful in, 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 in uh, proving all things like Ephesus did. But help us not to lose our heart, our first love, right? So you, you, want, the, you want to take the good and make sure you don't have the bad. Um, you know, there's Smyrna, Pergamos. We'll get into all those and their different attributes. So practically speaking, the church, uh, in, a, in a, just an inspirational or devotional sense, um, man, every pastor ought to examine these churches and, and say, you know what, I want the best of the churches And and help us, Lord, not to have the worst of these churches. We don't need Nicolaitans running around here. We don't need, you know, the deeds and the doctrines of the Nicolaitans. These are things God hates, right? So those are not things I want to see at Heartland. Uh, And so um, all of those types of things that we'll learn as we go through there, you'll see how they're relevant in history, but you can also see how practically or devotionally, inspirationally, you can apply them in your own life, and you can apply them in the life of the church. So we, uh, we, we are in the Laodicean church age. But I don't want us to be a Laodicean church. I pray to God that we are, have a Philadelphian church in a Laodicean church age. And that comes to having fidelity to God's word and God's people. That's why you constantly hear me as a mantra. What are the two things we need to do? Love God, love people. That's not just hyperbole. That is the fulfillment. That is the great commandment, which we're talking about in First John. That's what's going to see you through uh, to get to the great invitation. But also, we got to love God's word and be faithful to the word of God. And uh, man, if you can hold fast to the faithful word as you've been taught, uh, that will open doors. Let no man can shut. And, uh, and I tell you what, that's what we, we got to hold on to is God's word. Okay, so that completes that. So let's go to the church of Ephesus and start looking at that in the time we have remaining. So there's three applications of scripture, and we just covered them. Historical, doctrinal, and inspirational. This letter was written to the actual Church of Ephesus around 91 to 96 A.D. So, before I go any further, let's go to Revelation chapter two, and, uh, and let's, let's just read over the Church of Ephesus. So, uh, we, we kind of glossed, we skipped like a rock over Revelation one. If you want to get more information on Revelation, uh, my Revelation study is up on the website under Listen, and there's like I don't know a hundred weeks. I don't know. There's a lot. Of, there's a lot of volume. So you can just go there, and it's all divided by the, the, uh, the, the uh, chapters, and you can listen away. Uh, and so, uh, Revelation chapter 2 and verse 1. Under the angel of the church of Ephesus write these things, saith he, that uh, holdeth the seven stars in his right hand, who walketh in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks. I know thy works. And by the way, the candlesticks are uh, defined for us in, in uh, verses 19 and 20 of chapter 1. I know thy works that they lay, <clears throat> thy works and thy labor and thy patience, and how thou canst not bear them which are evil, and thou hast tried them which say they are apostles and are not, and hast found them liars, and hast borne and hast patience, and for my name's sake hast labored and hast not fainted. This is a good thing, right? They've done good works. Now, not to be saved, but we know that we're saved unto good works. These guys did the good works. They, they were patient. Uh, they did not put up with people that were false uh, teachers, false apostles. They found them liars. They proved them out. They they uh, they had patience for Christ's name'sake. They labored. They didn't faint. But he says this in verse four. Nevertheless, I have somewhat against thee, because thou hast left thy first love. Remember therefore from whence thou art fallen, and repent, and do the first the first works. Or else I will come unto thee quickly and remove thy candlestick out of his place except thou repent. Uh, And then he says this, but this thou hast, that thou hatest the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which also I hate. He's like, man, you hate those deeds of the Nicolaitans. I hate those too. Later on in verse 15, he'll deal with the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. Verse 7, he says, he that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. To him that overcometh will I give to eat of the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. All right, so... Those first seven verses give us an outline of the first, uh, era, the first, what we would call church age, and this obviously again is written to the church at Ephesus around ninety-one to ninety-six A.D. Um, when uh, when uh, John was caught up to the to uh, uh, to see the day of the Lord. The doctrinal application, the details of the events and the circumstances are taking place during the church age from about ninety A.D. the debt which is uh, you know just before the death of. Of, uh, of, John to about 200 AD with the advent, the transition uh, which will be coming of the Roman Empire. And I'm going to check my dates. I may have... If my dates do cross up, don't sweat it because like I told you in my introductory comments a few weeks ago, these dates are approximate and you can kind of slide them around. That one is, is consistent. I just want to make sure all my dates are consistent. So uh, inspirationally though, it does contain uh, commendations um, uh, <clears throat> condemnations and warnings to all churches at all times in history you can apply this to every church uh, you know and and as far as practically speaking there's there's attributes here that all churches should understand and apply okay i don't think that's rocket science so let's look at the time frame understanding the time frame the, the uh, ephesus church age begins after the death of the apostles of course john is the last of the apostles uh, he's the last one to live they couldn't kill him. Church history says they couldn't. They tried to boil him, but he just wouldn't boil. <laughs> so they just like, okay, well, I guess we'll just send him off to an island. So, uh, so that's what happened to John. Uh, history records. And so after the death of John, it brings us to this period period commonly referred to as the Apostolic Church Fathers. And, um, in Matthew, go over to Matthew twenty three. Uh, we'll look at this real uh, as quickly as I can. Matthew chapter twenty three. Verse one it says, Then spake Jesus to the multitude and to his disciples, saying, The scribes and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. All therefore whosoever they bid you observe, that observe and do, but do not ye after their works, for they say and do not. So God here is acknowledging, Jesus is speaking. He's acknowledging that the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. They they had an official role that God acknowledged, their their leadership, by the way, which is also a curse. Because they crucified, they were in part of crucifying Jesus, but they, they bind heavy burdens he says don't 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 allow that they bind heavy burdens grievous to be borne, and lay uh, them on men's shoulders, but they themselves will not move them with one of their fingers, but all their works they do for to be seen of men, they make broad their phylacteries and enlarge the borders of their garments, and love the uppermost rooms at the feasts and the chief seats in the synagogues and the greetings in the markets, and to be called of men, Rabbi, Rabbi, right, uh, doctor, you know, pastor. But, <clears throat> but be not ye called Rabbi, for one is your master, even Christ, and all ye are brethren. And call no man, here it comes, no man your father upon the earth, for one is your father which is in heaven. Neither be ye called masters, for one is your master, even Christ. But he that is greatest among you shall be your servant, and whosoever shall exalt himself shall be abased, and he shall humble him. He that shall humble himself shall be exalted. Well, you can see very clearly what Jesus thinks of the leadership of Israel, and uh, and so it's interesting that uh, the apostolic church fathers they get caught up in Nicolaitanism, right? And that's an exaltation over the laity of everything that Jesus is warning against of the Pharisees. And that legalism, remember, Paul was fighting against that. We see it very clearly in Galatians. Paul is fighting against legalists uh, before his death as he writes to the Galatians. So the main influence of Ephesus' church were the apostles. Uh, look over at Ephesians chapter 2, and, uh, and this isn't going to surprise you. I'm, I mean, obviously, the apostles would be the main influence, hopefully. Um, <clears throat> Ephesians chapter 2. we talk about we often quote this verse it says we are somebody want to read it real quick i'll reread it for the the camera if you're there revelation 220 Five. yeah so So uh, Jesus is, or Paul's saying here, God's saying it through Paul. Now, therefore, you are no more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints in the household of God. Speaking to Gentiles, in the church of Ephesus, right, you don't have to play second fiddle uh, to the household of faith that preceded you. You are now uh, sanctified. You are now in the family. You know, he's laying it out for him. Um, You are no more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints in the household of God. Right? So you're, you're right there with the, the Old Testament saints. The, you're a New Testament saint. It's all good. And, and conjunction, junction, what's your fu- function? You're built upon the foundation uh, of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. So, so we see that the main influence of the, the Ephesian church age was, as Paul records, the apostles and the prophets. So we're looking at church history, the church history resides in our Bible. The main influence of the uh, Ephesus church... Do you guys need outlines? Okay, I didn't know if you had one. Um, the main influence of the Ephesus church age were, were the apostles. So it was directly influenced by the Twelve, which uh, is listed there in your notes. Peter, Andrew, James, John, Philip, Bartholomew, uh, Thomas, Matthew, uh, James, the son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, Simon, uh, the Canaanite, and uh, Matthias, who replaced Judas in in, uh, uh, in Acts. Alright, so it's directly influenced by their disciples too, the Apostolic Church Fathers. Now, who are these fathers? Uh, these are the ones that are commonly acknowledged. Clement of Rome, Ignatius, uh, Papias, uh, Epicurus, uh, Basilidus, I think is how we say that, Polycarp, and Justin Martyr. And I'm really groove on Polycarp because you can see um, you can see Polycarp's um, handprints in church history. You can still get a hold of his epistles, which is cool. All right, so uh, point C, we see the development of the two lines through the apostolic church fathers. Uh, point A, a biblical line, uh, which is saved, tracing its roots to Antioch, Syria, um, And then you can see a non-biblical line, tra- lost group of men who are religious, but they don't know Jesus, tracing its roots to Alexandria, Egypt. And it's very difficult uh, to identify who is in which line when reading most church historians. As a matter of fact, most church historians will not um, distinguish between those that are like Polycarp, who are in the saved line, uh, and other men that are lost, um, like uh, uh, Clement of Rome. And so uh, they just say, yeah, these are the church fathers. Well, what do they believe about Jesus? What do they believe about the Scripture? you know those are a couple big questions origin it would be thrown in here for example origin is considered i've got a in my office i got some church history resources from you know that they use in colleges and stuff like that origin is just listed there like no problem man he's just one of the church fathers what a great guy he was well i got a feeling he might have been lost as a goose right and so he was mystical he was the allegorical he's the father of textual criticism literally which comes from Greece, greek philosophy so so yeah i don't know that origin is saved i certainly don't want his doctrine i'll stick to paul i had a guy said i had a i did have a guy in my office one time and uh, we were talking uh, about um about theology and uh and he, this guy gets around quite a bit and uh, we got to talking about you know end times of course and he's like um you know well so and so darby said this and and then so and so said this, quoting theologians from the last two, three, four, five hundred years, and uh, I said, "Well, I'll tell you what—I just—I stick with Paul." <laughs> that was into that discussion, because there really ain't much else you can say to that. I mean, I believe what I believe about the Bible—I I can find it in the Bible. It's what the, it's what the Word of God says. I just take what God says about it. That's what it says. I don't need Darby. I don't need anybody to tell me anything else. It, it comes from the Word of God. Not no no disrespect to those guys. Um, but uh you know what some of the church fathers you i wouldn 't give you enough to blow them away right uh, because they 're really not they 're not in line with the New Testament, so you kick them out that 's what the Ephesus Church did. They said they were apostles, and they weren 't so there were some strong bible believing churches like ephesus right then they were they were hardcore they were like hey man, if you don 't line up you 're you 're gone you 're gone however. You can have the right doctrine, right? And what did Ephesus, what did God say? Well, you've got to be careful there because you can lose your first love. Hold fast to the faithful word as you've been taught, not just the knowledge but the heart, right? Don't get too big for your riches, because there's Nicolaitans in the midst. There's people that are exalting themselves above the laity, uh, and so be careful with that. And so we have a living faith fellowship, right, that we get involved. I'll tell you, whenever you get involved in these fellowships and these hierarchies, you've got to be careful, because people can—it's—it's it's just the nature of people. Whether it's a local church pastor or, uh, you know, um, you, you get in a, in a even bigger group, and, and you got these big personalities and these super gifted people. Next thing you do, you'll start worshiping the person instead of worshiping the Lord. So you got to be careful with that. You got to be careful. I'm really the first guy to tell you that. And so, because uh, I can, men will always let you down, but God will never—God will never let you down. And so, uh, so just be careful. Don't worship people. Worship Jesus. All right. So point three, um, understanding. Uh, where am I at? I left off. Uh, I'm not as far as I thought. So uh, we, point C, we will see the development of the two lines through the apostolic fathers. I did cover that. So point three, understanding the text. The name Ephesus uh, means fully purposed. We have covered that in our introduction. They spread the gospel and planted churches. They used a line of Bible manuscripts tracked back to Antioch. Assyria, and so here around HBF, right, you get a little, uh, people are like, you know, you hold fast to that old King James Bible. Why is that? It actually, it, it does tie us back into church history. Um, there is an Antiochian line of text, and that's the one that we hold to. There's Syriac was the old Syrian manuscripts of Asia Minor, minor uh, the Peshitta or Peshetto. Uh, were transferred out of Antioch, the old Syriac and the originals, which, by the way, there is no one original text. Uh, God has given us portions of many texts, but we don't have like one old Greek Bible just laying up on the shelf. Oh, let's go see what that said. right? So we have portions of it because it was used and it was, it was uh, handed around. The old Latin and the originals, not the Latin Vulgate, but old Italic Latin uh, came out of the Antioch of Syria, scriptoriums uh, in the first century. And so uh, you can find a good example of that. One I like to point out in HBI is uh, a lot of people say, um, uh, oh "What's his name?" Erasmus did. It, he he did the Roman Church a favor in First John chapter uh, five uh, when he said, uh, uh, "You know, for there are three that bear record in heaven: the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost. And these three are one." That he threw that in as a as a compliment to. Uh, to the Roman church because there wasn't really any manuscripts that said that or there, I'm sorry. Oh, can we move the slide? Uh, there, there no oh yeah, there's no more slides. That's right. Uh, I'm sorry. That's my fault. I ran out of time. I forgot to tell you that. Yeah, I was, I uh, had some things transpired that, uh... okay, let me finish my thought before I forget that. Relax. We'll get there in just a second. Uh, where was I at? Yeah, the text. And so, what's that, Ron? Yeah, First John five seven. So the old getting back to the scriptorians and the text, the old italic, uh, which is mentioned in our notes here. The old it's Latin here, but it's the old italic Latin. Uh, there are like nine, if I remember right, like nine manuscripts. There's a man, There's like nine old manuscripts. One of them comes from like 100 and something AD uh, that has First John chapter five and verse seven. But yet today, modern textual critics will say, "Oh well, there was you know Erasmus just threw that in because there wasn't any. It wasn't in any of the Greek texts. What are you talking about? Um, you know that's actually not honest. That's dishonest." Uh, and so, um, so this text issue, is a, it's a deal, and it's only been a deal uh, like it is today for the last, um, you know, couple hundred, well, not even a couple hundred years yet, uh, just since about 1900. That's why the, it starts with the Odyssey and Church Age. We'll get to that later. But it's important because um, getting back to the uh, the name means fully purposed. They spread the gospel in planted churches. Planted is the next word. And it traced back to Antioch of Syria. So there were scriptoriums in Antioch, Syria uh, that would, Antioch is the the blank there under point two, uh, fully purposed, planted, Antioch. Antioch is is the same, um, is where the, the church that Paul and Barnabas were sent out of in Acts chapter 11. And so this period is filled with good, good is the optimum word there, churches working from a solid biblical foundation. So they were good churches working from a solid biblical foundation. Um, good churches working from a solid biblical foundation after all we know from Ephesians 2 two twenty, I should say that they were built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets Jesus Christ being the chief cornerstone so they had the goods um, and so anytime a church decides to be fully purposed by the way Satan is going to come against that because he's always countering what God is doing and he will enter in and persecute and sometimes his attack is subtle so in the beginning, in the garden, when God uh, set Adam and Eve in a place to get forward progress in the kingdom um, uh, that He was establishing, what did the devil do? He showed up to corrupt the Word of God. He, he he threw them off by corrupting the Word of God. That's why. So very early on, the Word of God gets corrupted. But you know what? These guys in Ephesus weren't having it. They were they were they were holding fast to the Word. Um, the problem with them wasn't the Word. The problem was they were getting a little caught up. There were there were some coming in that were getting caught up and and uh, a little bit too big for their britches, so the commendation point B of the Ephesian church in verse two, was that it was persevering, uh, not to be taken in the same context as persevering persevering of the saints, uh, on the tulip, uh, but they were persevering. They were very uh, they were very, um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? They were they were tenacious, uh, and so. In Revelation chapter two. Uh, you can see there in verse uh, Revelation 2, 2, he says, I know thy works, thy labor, and thy, that word, when you see patience, patience implies that they were patient in suffering oftentimes. And, and how thou canst not bear them that which were evil, and thou, and thou hast tried them which say they are apostles and are not, and hast found them liars. So they were a persevering church. Uh, in verse 3, it says, they have, they, and hast borne, and has patience, he says. Patience again, twice it's attributed to them, for my name'sake. And has labored and has not fainted. So they were able to persevere. It was a laboring church, uh, and it didn't give up. They were constantly under Roman persecution, under Domitian, who loved Nero. And so, uh, and so you can remember, remember you can go back and read the Book of Acts. You can you can see the oppression that Ephesus was under politically. Uh, because they, they, they wanted, remember what, what they said that day when Paul, they had a big uproar and the, the gentleman stood up and said, whoa, 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 whoa. everybody calm down unless we got to give an account to Rome uh, because uh, they, we're going to be in trouble if we have an assembly that's not sanctioned, right? So cool your jets, everybody, because they were concerned about the Roman government, right? So Ephesus was a interesting town, interesting church, there's a lot of tension there, a lot of fiery people, a lot of people with a lot of opinions, uh, and yet they had a very strong church there, uh, and they had a very strong Roman influence. Okay, point two, it was doctrinally sound, uh, which we've covered that as well. You know, thou hast found them liars, right? He, they were doctrinally sound. The Word of God was completed during this time, and it was distributed among, amongst the believers. Now, when we say the Word of God was completed... We're talking about the canon of Scripture. You hear about the canon of Scripture, and you are like, "What is that? Like a cannon? You got a cannonball? They put a, you know, put a Bible in the thing and light the fuse and blow it off?" No, like the canon just it's the it's the the uh, it's the, uh, uh, the, the composition of all of the Bible as it's come together. So they began to bind them into books uh, made of vellum. Uh, in this in this uh, first church age, from you know just after the death ninety AD approximately, um, into two hundred AD by one forty BC, uh, BC people were uh, di- uh, uh, were dis- disputing which books were that should be uh, that should probably be AD I don't think that's right by one forty BC they were disputing which books were part of the canon of scripture. That should be 140 A.D. So if you got that in... does you guys have that in your notes? Did I put that in there? Okay. Well, then that's wrong. So Ron picked up on it. 140 A.D., people were disputing which books were part of the canon of Scripture. So people were already saying, well, I think this should be in and this shouldn't be in. But they already had the canon settled really around the time of uh, the Apostle John. I think in the first century it was pretty much settled uh, probably even before the death of John with the exception of having the book of Revelation that was added. All right, so during this time, false apostles began to teach uh, false doctrine, uh, which we saw clearly as well. So they wrote letters to churches pretending to be Paul. Look over at 2 Thessalonians. We saw they were pulling those tricks uh, before Paul even passed away. Um, that's, what, that's what Thessalonians is all about, is saying, hey, guys, uh, don't freak out. Um, you know, it doesn't matter who writes it, me or, or it doesn't matter who writes it. But if somebody sends you a letter... And, and it uh and it's not authenticated don't don't get crazy uh, because there's people out there writing messed up letters in second Thess- or first thessalonians second Thessalonians I'm sorry chapter two and uh, in verse one Paul and Sylvanus uh, and Tim- Timotheus under the church of the Thessalonians in God our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ grace unto you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ <clears throat> Oh, I'm in the wrong chapter. Sorry. Second Thessalonians 2. Now I bes- we beseech you, brethren, by the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and by our gathering together unto him. That was the topic. Um, uh, that ye be not soon shaken in mind or troubled, neither by spirit nor by word nor by letter as from us, as that the day of Christ is at hand. And so here he's saying, hey, relax. Relax. Um, if somebody writes you a letter and says we've entered into the Daniel's 70th week, relax. Uh, we have not done that yet. And he talks about not being deceived. Let no man deceive you by any means, for that day uh, shall not come, except there come a falling away first, and that man of sin be revealed, the son of perdition. And so, uh, and then he, he fast-forwards to, uh, you know, before the second coming of Christ... There must be an Antichrist, and he's going to rise at the midpoint. He's going to take over uh, the whole world, literally, and proclaim himself to be God. First, he'll rise up as a political leader. Then he'll rise up as a false messiah. And then uh, his end will come uh, three and a half years later. So Paul's saying, hey, relax, church. Uh, In chapter 3 and verse uh, 17, he says, he says, uh, the salutation of Paul with mine own hand, which is the token in every epistle, so I write. So basically, he's saying you need voter ID. No, he didn't say that. He says you need you need epistle ID. Epistle ID. I need you to look at the. This is my signature. Make sure all the epistles have this signature in it. And so uh, they would they would make sure that he that his signature is because he didn't always write it. There was other people who wrote it, but he would make sure his signature was in it, so people knew this this came from the apostle Paul because. They were they were already attacking Scripture. The Word of God is always going to be under attack, so just keep that in mind. They were already, and I don't say that to make you feel like, oh, I don't know if I've got it. We do have the Word of God. God's preserved it. He promises to preserve it. But just know that the devil's going to attack it. So, um, and so they twisted Scripture to make it line up with their doctrine. Uh, and we know from Second Peter three sixteen, uh, you know that, uh, which we quote a lot, you know, but we. In, in regard to God preserving His Word, in Second Peter, in chapter Second uh, Peter three sixteen, uh, he says here. Uh, but, but as also in other epistles, I would mention this. I referenced this earlier. As also in other epistles, speaking in them of these things, in which uh, are some things hard to be understood, which they which they that are unlearned and unstable rest, as they do also other scriptures unto their own destruction. So twist, twi- uh, scripture was being twisted uh, to, make, uh, to make it line up with doctrines that just weren't in the word of God. And of course, uh, those that had a Hebrew background, a Jewish background, they had to process this grace thing. I mean, it was hard for some of them because they were brought up to believe you've got to be Jewish to be saved. And Paul's saying, nope, you just got to trust Jesus Christ because he's greater than the law. All the law is fulfilled in Christ. And the apostles agreed, lay no other burden on them, right? Other than don't eat things strangled and, and keep from fornication. Uh, but you know what? These, they're free. Don't try to make a Gentile a Jew uh, because they don't need to be. And, uh, and so you want to keep the law, it's good for you. Keep the law, but it has nothing to do with your salvation. That has to do with your Hebrew heritage. And so you want to wear your yarmulke, wear it all day long, but it has nothing to do with your salvation, right? And they're just like, what? You know? And so they're having to process all that, and really, all they're processing is Christ, who Jesus really was, and the fact that that's why Abraham's such a big figure, uh, and Paul brings that up. Abraham's a big figure in the Gospels or in like in Romans, uh, because he's the father of faith. Before there was a Moses, there was an Abraham, uh, and that's why Hebrews deals with Melchizedek. Right before there was an Aaron, there was a Melchizedek, and so uh, Paul is trying to teach the Jews that, that really faith. Preceded the law of Moses, and so um, and so. Uh, when you put it in those terms, it's like, oh, yeah, yeah. So, so that was something that was being processed, and the scripture would people would twist the scripture to line it up with their doctrine, as they do today, right? And the primary there's only really two. There's only two theologies, if you want to boil it down in Christianity, and really in any. If you want to boil it down, it's grace and works. That's it. And so either you believe in God's grace, the finished work of Jesus Christ, salvation in Christ alone through His finished work alone, uh, by grace alone, right? And you trust Christ and His work alone uh, for salvation, or you work your way to heaven. And that's typically going to be couched in what's called baptism regeneration, that you must be baptized to be saved, which is true, but you've got to be baptized in the Spirit to be saved in this dispensation. So, Uh, When you get saved, Christ baptizes you in his spirit. Literally, he comes inside of you. He's in you and you're in him. It's called the baptism of the spirit. Ephesians chapter uh, 4, 1 Corinthians chapter 2. But that baptism happens not by what you do, but what he did, right? As soon as you trust him, he comes inside your heart. He seals your soul till the day of redemption. And so that's the baptism that we, that's why the baptism in the water that we see is not to be saved. It's because we are saved. So it's a public declaration of what's already happened internally. We will resurrect because he's a resu- he is the resurrection. And so I think you guys understand all that. But these are things that in the first century, already people were starting to go toward baptism regeneration, right? And, you, oh, well, you got to be baptized to be saved. So those heresies, or like I've been teaching on Sunday morning, you've got to have knowledge that only these church, quote, fathers like Origen have, right? If you have their knowledge, well, then you are holy. But if you don't, well, sorry for you. you just got to keep working, you know. And uh, again, those heresies, God hates those things. All right, so let me finish up uh, this thought here, so I can close up, and we'll pick up here next time. Um, and so the church called them uh, what they really were, and they were they were liars. They were liars, and so it hated the same things that Jesus hated. We saw that. The word is trans, a transliteration of the Greek word, and I put that in your notes. So you can see what it looks like in the Greek. Of course, that font's a little more modern than what they would have wrote, written it in uh, back in the day. But it, you can almost see Nicolaitan, uh right there in the in the text, in the Greek. So it's transliterated. That's What's it mean? By the way, what does it mean to transliterate a word? I'm sorry. Yeah, letter for letter, word for word. So if we're transliterating a word, like uh, I'll give you one that has been... Um, well, that, baptism, baptize, is another word. If you look in the Greek, it's baptismo. Um, and what is that? that? That was a word that was not in English. So the word Nicolaitan was brought straight from the Greek into the English language. Uh, so it was the word baptize. They could have said dunk, immerse, whatever, but they decided no. Because there's more than just dunking and immersing. Baptism also represents identification with. And so the word "baptized" is a unique word that, that the translation, uh, when the King James gang was putting the Bible together, and really Tyndale, um, uh, he, they created the word. Just there's another there's other words that were they didn't create it; they just brought it into our language. And so the English language was still under development as the as the Bible was coming together. The King James Bible actually is what solidified the English language, and uh, that's why the apex really of our English language is around the King James Bible. If anything, we're degenerating, not getting better. But uh, that's another discussion. So uh, Nico means to destroy or conquer, and Laetan is laity or common people. So it's to destroy the common people or conquer the people. And so uh, they taught uh, that the clergy uh, class was to lord over the common people, and it results in the common man being prevented from studying the Scriptures. And it forces the common man to depend upon the priest. Now, before they went hardcore into the priesthood, which really will come more around three hundred sixty AD forward, the way they did that, accomplished that, is what I've been talking about on Sunday morning. It wasn't so much a guy with a robe on in the Babylonian priesthood, which comes later. It was basically through the philosophy, the philosophical mindset of the Greeks, of saying, "Okay, you're the learned guy. That's you know, if you don't have the credentials, you don't know God. You got to know God like I know God because I'm the smart guy." and you're the dumb guy. And so access to God became through a man. People were putting themselves ahead of the common people's ability. Of course, 50% of the population plus of the Roman Empire was slaves. Not all of them were literate. The slaves that were literate happened to be primarily Hebrews. A lot of the Hebrews that were bond servants were in the homes of Romans teaching their, their children how to read, write, do arithmetic because they were great teachers and they were very educated. Um, but a lot of the people in the world, the Greek or the uh, Gentile world, they were not literate. And so uh, that was also a, probably a problem for the Holy God, or for for Jesus, you know, and hating uh, what was going on at that time. OK, so that gets us to point C. Um, I'm going to just park the car there. We'll pick it up uh, uh, on that next time we get together. And so then we'll get into some of these names and, and places in church history. Sorry. OK, you guys got any questions? If you're joining us online, you can email us at contact at hbfcast.org uh, or hit us up on the message in uh, Facebook, and we'll get back with you. Ron Kasson, yes, sir? I'm just curious if a simple definition of transliteration would be an English-sized version of like, a Greek or or Latin word. Yeah, that would be a great uh, – uh, Ron said, if, would a good definition be an, english, an English-sized? I don't know if English-sized – is that what you said, english sized." Englishized, I don't know about that word, Englishized, but it's an Englishized version of a, of a uh, you know, like a Greek, Latin, Hebrew word. And that is exactly what a transliteration is. It's a word brought into the English language from another language. Um, it typically would be he- Hebrew, Latin, or Greek. And uh, anyway, so they also, words like uh, atonement, it, that comes from uh, th- that comes from the, the concept. There wasn't a word in English for atonement, so they created one Called At-one-ment. That's where atonement comes from. At one, being one with Christ. And so, in in, uh, in the Greek, it was there. So they just they had to create the word to make it. And that's what we and now we know in English what atonement is. So anyway, little things like that. It's interesting. At least to me, I don't know about y'all. But anyway, you have the word in your language. I'm not your pope. You have a responsibility to read your Bible. And know your Bible. You are literate. God has delivered your Bible to you. And you're to know it. And so we're a church that teaches the word of God. So make sure that you take it seriously. And don't just let anybody sell you anything. Make sure you prove all things and hold fast to that which is good. And don't get caught up in thinking, this is the devil's trick, right? You get extreme about the Bible. I love God's word. Don't mess with me, man. The next thing, you got to be careful. Don't think of yourself more high than you ought. Knowledge puffs up, charity edifies, right? So don't think that you know everything and that just because you have knowledge, you're better than anybody because we're not, right? And so that's the balance that you can learn from Ephesians uh, because that's kind of what happened. They did have the knowledge. They had the right answers. They had the right stuff, but they lost their first love. So love God and his word, but make sure you love people too, right? Have that balance. And man, God will open doors that no man can shut. All right, let's pray. We'll be dismissed. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for the opportunity to uh, swim around in the Word of God.